Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode we're diving into the From Dust Till Dawn trilogy. I'm your host, Michael, and my co-host, Kersey, is on the other side. Hey, how's it going? Okay, so let me ask you this. From Dust Till Dawn, did you know going in about the Switch? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I watched this movie in high school, so I was very very aware of all of that. I mean, I should say, like, the first time I watched it, I wasn't prepared for what it was going to be. Okay, see, I had seen the trailers, and... I'm gonna guess you. How old were you in '96? Like four, five? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, four. Yeah. So I mean, I was in college by then. It was my freshman year of college, and I had seen the trailer over and over and over. So I was completely prepared for it. But the people I was with had no fucking clue, and watching them lose their minds was so good that I found another group of friends, and we went and saw it again. <laughs> and I just wanted to see their reaction on the flip. <laughs> Um, I'm that crazy fucker who thinks the first half is better than the second half. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's that's the weird. I was gonna say the the main criticism I have with each of the three is that I think that the last the the last act is the weakest one. Yeah, it's something about I am so compelled by this small little movie about two crazy fuckers who have taken a family hostage and they're going to Mexico, and I almost want that to be the whole movie but then would people even be talking about it if it didn't have the flip halfway through because not only is that a shocking moment if you don't know but also it's legendary for its insane like monster fest i mean it is a gore rama and so much in fact that certain countries banned it as a nasty yeah i mean it takes it it what I particularly like about the first one is that it takes its sweet ass time with everything like all of the violence in the movie up till that point is incredibly understated for the most part with exception of like the opening yeah but that a lot a lot of like kind of action movies have a big opener to kind of really win and then everything after that is just so silent so quiet and so slowly paced that when you get to the that turn you it, it just Everything that you think you know about the movie just goes out the window, and you don't know what's going to happen next. And I keep thinking about like the Tarantino Rodriguez relationship, and of course we know that there was a thing in Sin City where they said special segment directed by Quentin Tarantino. But I just got done watching Desperado, and I watched this right after it, and I saw Four Rooms a little while ago. There's a period here, within like less than a year, where they're both on fire. They're appearing in movies, they're directing, producing, writing. I mean, whatever they can get greenlit is getting greenlit. And have you seen Desperado lately? Um, I think the last time I watched it was maybe five, six years ago. There's a couple sequences in that, especially in the beginning, where I feel like Tarantino wrote it and possibly directed it, or they just let him improv. The Buscemi scene and the scene, of course, where he tells the joke. I was piss- just going to say the Buscemi scene is the one that kind of stands out from the rest of the movie. And, and it feels like, yes, I know Tarantino co-wrote this, but I almost feel like he was more in charge of the first half of the movie. But you know the uh, director guild rules will not let you really share directing duties unless you were a team. And I wonder if it's one of those things where Tarantino kind of like sat back for the last half, but really had a, a lock on the first half with Rodriguez because it just feels more like his movie. Have you ever seen Full Tilt Boogie? Uh, I have seen the doc- doc- documentary once, when, and the only thing I remember from this... <laughs> 
is Fred Williamson saying, eh, they got $20 million to make this crazy movie. I could have made 20, mil, uh, 20 movies for that. And I was like, yeah, but they all be shit. Fred, I've seen yeah. your movies. They're garbage. <laughs> but that's it. What, 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 what did you remember? Yeah, so in the documentary, I, I like the documentary. I've, I've seen it uh, once, I think. I wouldn't mind watching it again. But one of the things that's inter- that was kind of an interesting dilemma that Robert Rodriguez uh, talked about was like having Tarantino constantly on set not only as the writer but as one of your main actors is the the desire to do things exactly how he would or try to lean on tarantino as a crutch um for trying to frame a scene uh-huh. um so it was very difficult for him to like you know look him in the eyes and say no you're wrong about this and we have to do it this way okay um yeah so as, as far as um, as far as i understand it was his tarantino style was very important for him to sort of emulate but also make it his own at the same time right and it had to be a struggle i mean they're really close but you could see a relationship being shattered on a movie like this if they fought too hard over the vision yeah and maybe that's why it is a little messy there's some compromises given and and i think both of them love each other so much that they kind of like yes but i'm gonna back off you know so it wasn't as tightly focused mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure both of them were probably upset about about some scenes by the end, by the time they were done, like, I wish I didn't listen to him about this, or he should have listened to me more. And it's interesting, so this is a two-part, kind of a two-part episode, because we're going to discuss two Robert Kurtzman concepts, basically, uh, or he's directly involved with it, so he is the main uh, guy behind this, originally, like, he came up with the idea and hired Tarantino, and he's the director and special effects master on both of them with with his K&B team, um, cause yeah, Wishmaster, of course, Oof, I wish it was better, <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's, it's still interesting and, and noteworthy, but, um, this started off as a from dusk till dawn. Sorry. I said that so fucking backwards. I hate it when I do that. Um, started off as a Tales from the Crypt episode and then just got expanded from there. That's two movies, uh, in 96, this and Frighteners that got expanded upon from just an episode. And that's actually interesting that you mentioned that because they did eventually they did make a TV series out of the first uh, from Dust Dawn movie, which actually uh, watching it uh, did make a lot more sense um, when it first came out. Okay, as just like this first movie split up into like five different episodes. I have seen the first episode where Don Johnson is in the gas station for the entire episode, and he basically takes over from Michael Parks and. Um, I think this is ground zero for a whole new generation discovering Michael Parks. They may have seen him before, but this is when they're like, who the fuck is this dude? I gotta find out who he is. It's a goddamn great performance. Yeah, and that's the, one of the things that's... I don't want to say it's upsetting. It's not, but like his performance, that whole opening scene with him is probably the most iconic part of the film for me. It's the, like, the thing I think about the most when I go back to watch it. Yeah, it's a powerhouse, and and from this, of course, um, people I can't remember if they said like this character shows up again in Grindhouse. Am I wrong? He he does, yes. Okay, and then like you know he's he, the he's the father of one of the characters, the the gal that broke her right her, her arm or whatever, and was like the had the needles. Yeah, that's right. She threw the yeah threw the needle. Um, so yeah, so he, he's in this, and he's in the third one as like his grandfather and then um a lot of people know him from the kevin smith movie uh tusk in red state i'm just he didn't get a whole hell of a lot of juicy performances in his career huh obviously 
Kill Bill, one and two. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying, like, his first thing, uh, I want to say the TV show was called Then Came Bronson. It was, like, in 68, where he was kind of like a James Dean wanderer on a motorcycle, and it was kind of like a mysterious show. And then everybody thought he was going to be the next thing, and it just never happened. And then slowly through the 80s, it was just low-budget garbage for, like, 15 years. And then all of a sudden, people rediscover him. And that's what I love about Tarantino is he saw these guys, like um, Robert Forrester and stuff like that, guys who did the work, no matter what the project was, no matter how good or bad it was. They were reliable, they were entertaining, and he would do his best to give them a career boost. Yeah, he's the one that really shines. Of course, this is noteworthy also because this is George Clooney's first, like, I'm a star now. He had been in movies before, and of course he was on ER, but this is like, this This He's is our... He's a TV actor, mostly. It's so funny, though, because this is a B-movie, like, this is not what you would expect, <laughs> and he fucking relishes it. Yeah, uh, he gives, you know, an incredible performance, and, like, what I really appreciate about, uh, again, probably mostly the writing, I don't know how much, you know, Clooney had, uh, had to say in his character, um, but I... I think him as sort of how do I word this? Okay, so in in a lot of movies where there's sort of a gangster, they try to, uh, and, and especially in like a hostage situation, they attempt to try to assert control through violence and fear. Uh-huh. And while he does he does use fear, but he tries to involve the victims as much as possible to like and attempt to not get them to freak out, just to like stay focused, like listen to me, answer my questions as a way to for them to just kind of like not freak out and it was really it, it's it's really good and it's really powerful um and it really works uh for this kind of movie but especially when you have someone like tarantino's character who's literally insane yeah, um, yeah. as your partner it, it makes kind of like a good cop bad cop situation well, yeah, and him and Kaitel work so well together uh Kaitel brings it down because he's usually more of the Clooney kind of character he's played against type yeah exactly and um, uh, this might be the most tolerable that Tarantino has ever been, because <laughs> I usually find him irritating as fuck. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like if I ever really enjoyed him in, because he's always, he always cameos in his movies. I don't think I've ever really liked him in when I see him in his movies. It's no. just more of like a cute, fun thing, but it's never it never adds anything to the movie. No, no. At least here his role is critical and he's more calm and he's not in like a, a mound of dialogue like crazy. He steps back so Clooney can shine. Yeah, he also, uh, you know, plays to his strengths, which is being, you know, a little weird creep, so. And uh, um, Salma Hayek. Has there? I, this is a top five, maybe top three, sexy performance I've ever seen. Holy crap! So yeah, but that's what's funny too. And then the full tilt boogie was like they they mentioned like she is not good at dancing at all. Like they had <laughs> to edit around that so much that, that like she's not really dancing on screen for any any longer than about a second before they have to cut to something. Uh-huh. And a lot of a lot of it was just because of the weight of that snake. I think. I'm good. Yeah, that, that thing probably weighed a ton. <laughs> she's like my back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, but, we... they, but they made it work. She uh, like as part and then as silly as that is, but she's also like has to is a good actress in that she has to play that off because anyone who's like constantly tripping over themselves for like five minutes straight would be apologetic or like try to try to reclaim it but she just kept moving and they were so that's how they were able to get it like that so yeah it kudos to her for that too 
And it's just, if you're a gore freak, I mean, see, I'm not really a gore freak, but I'm a special effects fan. I want to see how they did it. You know, some stuff I think is a little over the top. The the, the band with the, the guitars made out of body parts is kind of fucking stupid. That was, that was, yeah, that's a very that's a very Rodriguez style. Yeah, that's that's, that's probably the bottom for me. But I think some of the stuff is really well. I love that rat creature. It doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. I was just gonna say that like that one was so uh, um, unnecessary, but awesome. Uh, it just it's so much fun just watching all the crazy effects and what they did on a tiny budget. Um, and, uh, I, Tom Savini is fucking hilarious in this. I thought he was so good as, like, a sex machine, and <laughs> when he slowly starts to change, and he's covering his hand, and he's covering his mouth, and, oh, <laughs> I just, I really enjoyed I didn't expect that performance out of him. Yeah. Now, that's the peak. Let's right. go down to part two. Woof. Yeah, it's a bit of a drop. It's, there's, so the first and third one, I, the third one is the best sequel because it moves like crazy, it's got an interesting storyline, and it looks like a movie. Scott yeah. Spiegel does the second one, and he was just like their buddy, and I think they were just throwing him a bone, but I just don't think visually he has it, and the action is so dull. Yeah, it, that's, unfortunately, the worst part about it is that it's just forgettable. Yeah. And, like, and I watched one, two, and three all in the same day about a week and a half ago. I can remember one and three very well. I can barely remember the second one. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Robert Patrick is does give a good performance. Yeah, and that's and that's what I one thing I noticed. We've watched a couple of Robert Patrick movies, um, but I've noticed about his career um, throughout is that he's uh, really good in pretty much everything that he does, and it's kind of unfortunate that he. Does that really break the mold as often? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that whole curse. Because we talked about striptease on another podcast, uh, Jacob and I. I think it's horribly underrated. Um, people are so focused on how much she got paid to take her clothes off. And that's besides the point. Take that all out of it and it's still a pretty good movie. Um, but Robert Patrick kind of changed the direction of his career with that movie. Because before that, he was either doing, because of Terminator 2, he was doing roles like that. Like these cheap garbage directed video movies or the weird occasional sexual thriller, and I, that's weird. I don't want to see Robert Patrick in a sexual thriller. <laughs> yeah, he's got a he's got a very long face. It's not really. <laughs> it's very strange. But then all of a sudden he gets cast in striptease, and he's wild and crazy, and he's funny as hell, and and it started to build from there. There's of course hiccups. He'll get the supporting role in a studio film like Copland. Um, but then, you know, to fill the time and to get his paycheck, you know, he's going to do direct-to-video movies. And like a lot of those actors we mentioned earlier, he just shows up and he does the best he can. He doesn't phone it in. Yeah. It's just the movie isn't there. I hated the fucking fact that the first poster and the first trailer, because I was working on Blockbuster when this came out, they pushed that Bruce Campbell and Tiffany Amber Thiessen were a major part of this. What a kick in the dick. I know what Bruce Campbell was like second billing in that, and he was in it for I think he had maybe five lines. Yeah, it just and then he yeah. it was so yeah. Basically, the opening is Bruce Campbell and this other gal in uh, an elevator, and they're being attacked by vampire bats or some bullshit. And it turns out it's just a movie that our Patrick is uh, watching, and it's kind of it, it's a meta thing. And that's it. You never see Bruce Campbell again. I thought 
for the longest time, for about a half hour into the movie, that Bruce Campbell was going to be in it. Like, oh, isn't that funny that the actor that I was just watching is somehow in this hostage situation? But no, he just never shows up again. No. And here's the thing. Everything that takes place kind of with Danny Trejo and into the bar, the, the titty twister, that is still somewhat entertaining. It's the other stuff. For the love of God, a third of this movie, I shit you not, is the gang that is supposed to pull off a heist, hanging out in a hotel room watching shitty porn. Yeah. What the and, fuck? Yeah, it, like that scene to me is someone who was like trying to emulate Tarantino's writing style, and it was, it was just embarrassing. Yeah, it's that, and, but it's also, I feel like they were given, so they shot uh, two and three back to back. And I think they were given a lump sum by Dimension, and they said, well, fuck, the part three is going to cost, you know, this much more than we expected or, or whatever. So they, they say they had $5 million. They put $4 million on part three and one on this. Because <laughs> it doesn't... It's kind of a shame because, like, what... And, and this is something that Tarantino especially excels at, which is just small movies or movies that are just, like, small in scale but, like, have that are just incredibly entertaining... Tarantino can write a movie about four dudes watching porn in a hotel room. It would be awesome. Yeah, and this is and this is just terrible. The uh, so the third one is the one that got better reviews and and uh, when people talk about it, it's more memorable. A it changes up everything with its setting. It's set in the old west and it's got lively characters. It's got great action. I mean the camera fucking moves instead of being stable in one room. And mm. you know there's no real big names. This Michael Park comes back. Um, and Danny Trejo and stuff like that. A young Orlando Jones before he became briefly mm, right. a, a star. Um, but I just think that the story is so much more interesting, and the fact that you get the origins of all this stuff, plus I'm a huge Western fan. Uh, mm. th this one, to me, was so much better. Yeah, I was uh, shocked. I got, I got through uh, half of it, and I wasn't bored yet. And I was like, oh my god, that's uh, like... It, it, Going from like just fresh from watching the second movie, where I was like ten minutes in, I was already bored. I was like, ah, crap! I got this whole movie to go. Yeah. And they're getting halfway through. I'm like, oh my god! Like I'm actually excited for what happens next. <laughs> yeah, and what a feeling. <laughs> and this one, the the CGI, of course, does not hold up. They, no. they they have some really. Here's the thing: is I will take interesting ideas, even if they make no fucking sense whatsoever. Uh, if they're interesting, I can tolerate bad CGI. The whole snake thing was fucking crazy. <laughs> I don't understand it, but I liked it. And I would rather they have the balls to come up with something unique, even if it's not believable visually. Yeah. I don't know. Something about this one just works way better for me. Uh, and Michael Parks, he's the star, basically, of this one. And he's yes. just... He cherishes every second of it. I don't know so much about the the whole dynamic between the family. I didn't think that was as interesting. I just thought all the side characters were pretty amusing. Yeah, it's definitely it, it, it's propelled by side characters in the sense that like every time we go to a new location and we have new people to interact with that really help keep the keep it from getting stale. Um, everyone is incredibly interesting um, or unique uh, to their setting, um, and that's the thing that the second movie really needed. Because, yeah, like, the first and what, third one are kind of road trip movies in a way. Yes. What? And another, th another thing about them is that like the, the main drama that was happening, it, 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 these movies are kind of like the same writing as Stephen King, right? 
the first like a half of the movie is more like very real stakes and very real human stories before you uh, start adding in um, monstery type elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the first and third movie do that so well. Uh, and that's and the second movie really fails there because the main story is really boring, and I don't care whether or not they they succeed on this heist because there's no stakes involved. Right. Well, you also it's there. Hmm, so the first one, there's the family. This the normal everyday family gets kidnapped. So you you feel for them. You want all of them to survive. In the second one, there's yeah, no also like being held hostage uh, by you know uh, Tarantino. Uh, who's also insane and, you know, might rape and kill the daughter. And so there's, like, that added element on top of it, too, where it's, like, not only is it, like, this family's in trouble um, by these two maniacs, but, like, the, the they could die before they even get to the end of their goal, too, and that's what makes it uh, freaky. Yeah, and then the second one, they're all just redneck dipshits, basically. I mean, almost every single one is a dipshit. And so yeah, what like do they, I give they a could fuck? Just not, they could just not rob the, the bank and they would all be fine. Like, they didn't need to do that. And then the third one, while I said the family thing isn't as as interesting as they want it to be, it's still an angle that you can connect to. Like, there's a reason yes. why she just wants to know who her family is, what she really is. And, you know, and he loves her and he's following her to try to save her. So there's that. And so there's something you can latch onto and t- kind of connect to. That second one, that's the problem, is that you don't give a fuck about any of them or their mission. Yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah, so, like, when the when the vampires show up and they start killing them, I'm like, well, good, I don't care. Yeah. Like, Ray- Raymond Cruz's character is a psychopath. Why would I care if he lives or not? But I also think the action is so flat. It's it's just generic, you know, direct-to-video kind of action. There's no style. There's yeah. no real stunt it's work. A cl- it's a close-up of a guy shooting a gun and then a close-up of a guy reacting to getting shot, and that's it. It's, yeah. Like, there's nothing interesting about it. Um, whereas the third one, yeah, you're seeing the shot fired in, in the background, and in the foreground you see the hero dodging it, and you literally see the squib hit the wood near his head. Yeah, um, it's a little more, a little more fun, a little yeah. more cowboyish, and it, it definitely fit its style in the way that it was, in the way that it was being filmed, which really helps as well. So the TV show only covers the first movie. Oh no, it goes uh, way deeper than that. I think oh, it has okay. Two seasons. I just, I just after it went beyond like its original TV, uh, original movie um, episodes, I stopped caring. Okay, I was curious. So they didn't really have it, a lot it, of. They didn't really have a lot of good new ideas. Okay, I was wondering if they, they even bothered to acknowledge parts one and two. It, it seems like they didn't really need that. They could just ditch it and keep building on what they had with the first movie. Yeah, it's just the main the two main characters, the Gecko brothers, throughout the whole series, as far as I know. Okay. Um, anything else you want to say before we go? Um, no, I was. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, talked me into doing the third one because I was avoiding it because I tried to watch the second one years ago and I couldn't stand it. Yeah. Um, so I, I just quit, and then I really didn't want to watch the one, but I'm actually glad I did. That was pretty good. Yeah, I remember like the second one. I was really excited. I saw the trailer, and I was working at Blockbuster at that time, and I got it before it was released. And I was just like, if anybody asks me to recommend this, what the fuck do I say? <laughs> and and then I didn't pick up part three until like a year or two after it had come out, and then it was in one of those like. My, my video store had three movies for $1.99 for a week. You know, that kind of thing. I was like, ah, fuck it. I'll get the third one just to see. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, this is better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not as good as the first, obviously. I mean, yeah. but it's still, I mean, it's still great. I'm kind of surprised that 
dimension didn't some franchises there must be a reason why they didn't milk them to death because you know there's like 10 hellraisers 10 children of the corn you know there's seven or something like that of the prophecy but dust till dawn is the one i think out of all those that made the most money but somehow i bet you tarantino and uh, robert rodriguez have some sort of hold on that where they're like only if we say yes to your sequel that's why there's never been like 10 of these it's very possible. I'm not sure. I think one of the reasons why, like, Hellraisers, there's so many Hellraiser movies is because, like, none of those movies beyond, like, the first two were actually meant to be Hellraiser stories. They're just, like, old discarded scripts yeah. that they just added Cenobites into. I don't, but you can't really do that in the From Dust Till Dawn series. Like, that has to be intentional because, like, making the Titty Twister bar and then uh, making, like, tons of special effects uh, and like all the suits for the vampires is a little is a little much than rather than just like you have a, you have a pinhead and that's it and yeah, that's the I only guess. connection you have because I was thinking like they could have done that with the crow as well but I think there's also one of those rights <laughs> issues where it says hey we have to approve of this we have to you know agree with the budget and you know it, ha- it they had a contract where they had to show them at least in one theater in dimensions probably like ah fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after that fourth yeah, one. It is, it is possible. I know that, that Tarantino is very uh, attached to the T Twister bar. That's like one of his favorite sets. That's written, <laughs> I think. All right. So that is it for this episode. We're going to have a second part to this where we'll discuss Wishmaster, from, also from Robert Kurtzman. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll be right back.